Daniel, I went to the movies by myself. It's kind of awkward. I mean, it's, it's not that bad. I like going to the movies alone. It's not a big deal. You don't have to share your popcorn. No one's judging you, I guess. You can't, like, talk to anybody during the movie because there's no one there to talk you to. Probably you probably shouldn't be doing that anyway. Yeah. The, uh, it's harder to resist texting people because, mm. like, the, like you can't, like, lean over and whisper to somebody if you want to have a comment or commentary about the movie that you're watching. Yeah. There's, like, no one to tell, and so you have to internalize it all. So that's really hard. Um, you have to, like, just save it all for a podcast or something. Yeah. It's hard to focus on the same thing for two hours, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's not that bad. But I think I saw I saw Inception in theaters by myself. And what what year would that have been? I think that was in like two thousand Inception was after the Dark Knight Rise the Dark Knight, which was oh seven oh eight. So I think that was two thousand ten. Okay. Two thousand yeah, probably two thousand ten. Maybe eleven. I don't know. That's, somewhere around there. It's been a long time. So it's been a while since I gone to move by myself, even though, you know, I don't necessarily mind it. Yeah. Much just usually I guess other things going on. Anyways, the Alamo was doing a special re-release of this movie called RRR, which stands for a lot of things. <laughs> it's like the names of the actors and the director, the two actors and the director, but it's also like Rise, Revolts, Revolution or something. It's an Indian movie that was like half in English and half in some sort of Indian dialect language that I don't understand. And Daniel, that movie was incredible. <laughs> Are you being ironic when you say that? I can't tell. Like it was, it was crazy. There was, there was, there was tigers. Like the very beginning, it's like disclaimer: all the animals are CG, and the following animals weren't hurt during the making of this movie. And it's like oxen, lion, or tigers, <laughs> deer, and it's like listing wolves, all these animals. I'm like. That is a re- that's a really long list. Like I couldn't I couldn't read it before it changed screens. Was it was it obvious that they were CG or was it good that they had it, the disclaimer? It was obvious that they were CG, but it didn't look bad. I was Interesting. like I was like into it. <laughs> um I mean, there's a part in the movie where the guy like steps on the ground in front of a uh, a motorcycle and like flips it up into the air and catches it and then like throws it at somebody. I mean, that's pretty cool. It was just ridiculous. Where, where, was there a scene where there was a train and there were people dancing on top of the train? No. I feel like that's a staple there, in Bollywood But there movies. was, there, at Tollywood, I think is what this one is. But there was a part where there was a train that was stopping and the sparks from the train ignited the oil in the oil cart on the train and it blew up a bridge. Wow. And then these two guys had to tie ropes to each other and one was riding a motorcycle and one was riding a horse and they ran opposite directions on the bridge and launched themselves off the bridge in opposite directions and then swung back around and saved a child from burning to death. Wow. It was That's that is as real as it gets. But and then there's there was also a dance number and multi- only one multiple songs and I just like I'm not I'm not necessarily kidding when I say like this movie was insane, <laughs> but like in old Hollywood there used to be like these big grand epics and it's like a style of movie, things like um, the Ten Commandments or Ben Hur or Spartacus where they have like hundreds of extras mm-hmm. and these huge sets and there's all this giant scale, and you juxtapose that against like a Marvel movie where like almost all of it's on green screen, right and like it's all of it shot more on tight lenses and stuff like that for this movie. A lot of it is shot wide and it's just like, mm. here's these wide shots with these sweeping landscapes and it makes the scale of the movie feel huge. Hmm. And then on top of that, it's like three hours long and has yeah. an intermission. And like, <laughs> I mean, I don't watch a lot of foreign movies, but 
I don't know. This movie was this movie was something else. Yeah, sounds like an experience. Yeah, I would I would say uh, anyone out here who who hasn't seen RRR, like you just got to do it. You got to watch it. It's like the biggest movie coming out of India, I think ever. I wonder if it. You said it's a re-release, but I wonder if there is some reason they're doing that now because I feel like I saw a reference to it online recently. It's too. probably related to Oscar buzz. I think uh, that they got best original song or something nomination. Uh, for the Natu Natu song and dance, which apparently they released before the movie. And there was like videos of movie theaters in India where whenever that part came on the movie, everyone's like standing up and doing the dance oh, for the man. movie at the movie. Imagine if you could have seen that. It's unbelievable. Like how, like, geez, they, I feel like movie stars used to be a bigger deal here. Like you're like, oh wow, this is a Leonardo DiCaprio movie or whatever. I mean, maybe not anymore, but like, you know, back in like the sixties or seventies or whatever, it's like the movie was the star like that's still the way it is in a lot of Bollywood and Tollywood and Mollywood and Jollywood and all those wood movies. And so like this movie coming out, it's like these are the two biggest stars in India. And like the first time they're doing a movie together with like the biggest director in India. And so this is like a huge, huge deal. Yeah. And, yeah. That's uh, cool. Yeah. Anyway, saw that movie. It was great. Would recommend five stars. <laughs> Good to know. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video. This is, this is, I feel like this almost falls under, under follow-up, which for the record is not a segment of this podcast. We don't do follow-up. We don't want to get into trouble or anything, but we were, we ran into, ran into, we're at the camera store, which obviously like. That happens every now and then. Every now and then. And there was a gentleman repping Panasonic who had an S5 Mark II and an S5. And we were just kind of chatting with him a little bit, you know, talking about the camera and that sort of thing. And the topic came up as far as like CF Express versus SSD and why the S5 Mark II doesn't have some of that stuff. And like what might be coming with like the S1H and like, you know, how are you working with the Codex and ProRes and like, you know, reasons why you might not have that in this camera because it doesn't have a Safe Express card. And he was saying that for Panasonic, whenever they were, you know, making those choices and designing this camera, they decided that it was better to have the ability to record to an SSD because for consumers, CF Express cards are really expensive. And you might have a better time buying like a T5 or a T7 and just recording to that instead of having to record to this really expensive, you know, compact flash. And so in making that decision, they were able to then save co- development costs on the camera by not putting in this, you know, CF Express card. And like, it's going to take up more room in the camera. So the camera is going to be bigger. It's going to have more expensive components. And so they're like, it's cheaper for us. It's cheaper for you. Why would we not just design this camera to record to an SSD that's already plenty fast to handle, you know, the data rates of like ProRes or that sort of thing. And so that's what, that's what we did. And I mean, I don't know how much that's like the guy's just trying to sell me on a camera, but I thought it was kind of kind of an interesting take as far as, you know, why even put CF Express in there when you could record to an external SSD? Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. And I had not thought of that as a reason. I've always thought that SSD recording was like a pro feature and it's always something that I've wanted on my cameras. Hint, hint, Fuji, like we really want SSD recording. <laughs> cough, cough. But I mean, he's right. CF Express cards are really expensive. We were lucky that when Fuji released the XH2S, they had a rebate where you could get a free CF Express card. I feel like if that hadn't happened, I still wouldn't have a CF Express card. But I mean, it's really nice and I like having that, but it is expensive and I wouldn't want to buy it myself. 
And if I could record to an SSD, I would totally do that because I already have SSDs that would work. So, and then you can just plug it straight into your computer and like you already have an editing drive and that sort yep. of thing. And yep. I don't know, seems like a, like a pretty good feature. And I guess I'm glad that they did it. And it kind of makes sense why maybe this camera doesn't have CF Express. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that he said during that same conversation was that the uh, S5 Mark II's like really backordered. I mean, it seemed like they were flying off the shelves and yep. he was saying if people wanted the X model, they needed to just like go ahead and put in a pre-order now. And again, maybe he's trying to sell some cameras, but I mean, he was, he was at an event at the store and he was saying that he had wanted to have some cameras there to sell and that he didn't have any because they were all sold. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. So, I mean, it's cool to see that this has been a big splash for them, that they were able to just release the exact same camera with a functional autofocus and it's gangbusters. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I did see a rumor recently that they're going to be bringing, or maybe, I don't know if they said it themselves or if it was a rumor, but it sounded like they were going to be bringing phase detect autofocus to more of their lineup, including micro four thirds. So yeah, that was interesting. Maybe a GH7 or a a G9 Mark II or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Could yeah. be cool. Yep, yep. I'm I'm here for it. G-H- I'd like to see them doing that. GH6S. Yeah, GH62, something, something sure. confusing like mm-hmm. that. Yep. Ah, uh, yes, the GH62. Yes. I mean, they have to they have to come up with something for our things to put on their list next year. So, right, of course. Yeah, for, you know, best filmmaking camera in low light or something. <laughs> okay, more, more items and not follow up. Uh, I've decided that I'm going to name my uh, V-Mount Power Tools company. V-Mount Integrated Power Tool Company. Okay. That's a VIP tool company. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, put a lot of time and time and energy yeah. into that one. So all of you who are waiting you know, with bated breath, there you go. I'm glad you brought that back. It reminds me that we were on a camping trip recently, and I decided we needed a coffee maker with a DTAP input so that we could run it from a V-Mount. I mean, it's it's kind of perfect. Yeah. You're like, like, you could have a grinder with a V-Mount uh-huh. like, on it where you just like yes. pop your... Yes. I mean, you know, you're out on a remote set. People still need their coffee. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I don't see the problem. Yeah, it needs to happen. More, more appliances need to run on V-mount. Yes, indeed. And we're going to keep saying it until someone does it, dang it. <laughs> Sooner or later. All right. Since we're talking about V-mount batteries, do you have something to confess? Yeah, so I finally took the plunge and got into V-mount. I, I probably shouldn't have. I probably don't really need it, but they're running sales. When they run sales, uh-huh. super hard not buy things, and that's what happened to me. So yeah, that's how they get you. Yeah, we talked a few weeks ago about the Blind Spot Power Junkie Two, mm-hmm. and during that podcast recording, I pulled up the small HD or small small rig, small rig. Small rig. You got it. Yeah, small rig V mount batteries that but have all of, the cool inputs on it. Speaking of a small HD, I was watching The Last of Us, and at the end of the episode, they do like a behind the scenes like commentary thing, which I didn't know they do. I thought it was just eight minutes of credits, uh-huh. and turns out and uh, I caught like a few glimpses of their camera rigs and I was like pause <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they they had they had small HD monitors okay, okay. so all your disparaging of uh-huh. uh, these 720p small HD monitors yeah. I mean they're using them on uh, on TV shows mm-hmm. so yeah yeah we need to get on that level I guess mm-hmm. yeah. I mean I'm just I'm just saying there's nothing, nothing wrong with small yeah, HD yeah, Daniel yeah I don't know if you've seen how expensive those monitors are I, I haven't. No, they, no. They have a whole range of more pro level small HD monitors, and I mean they're like fourteen hundred minimum, and they go up to like two thousand. Like expensive stuff. Okay, so they're not running like. Uh, no, not the same one we had. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so my battery is not small HD. It's small rig. 
but I got the 50 watt hour version and I got a V-mount plate to put it on my camera rig and I've been working on building up a little camera rig with it and I'm pretty happy with that so far. I'll probably have some more thoughts on the rig overall in a week or two because we're going to film some stuff with it and I'll be able to see what it's like to actually use it. But I did have one weird problem with it so far where I wanted to power my camera with it, you know, as as one does with a battery. And I was trying to decide what the best way to power my camera was. And my immediate thought was to use USB-C. Sure. Because the camera can be powered over USB-C. And that way I can still have a normal battery in it. And, you know, that way if the cable comes loose or something, it's not just going to immediately kill the camera. Yeah. And I kind of prefer this just because if you're going to run a dummy battery in, now you're relying on whatever battery system you have to provide an adequate amount of voltage. Mm -hmm. And the manufacturer batteries by Fuji are going to be rated to provide that voltage all the way down to, you know, low, low percentage, 5% kind of thing. And you're not going to run into like undervolt camera shuts off situation. And so like that battery acts as a buffer for Mm -hmm. USB-C, whereas it doesn't with a a dummy battery. Yep. And on the X-H2S specifically, it seems like there's a real lack of good dummy battery options. So I don't want to go too deep into that today, but I mean, this is it's hard to find a good dummy battery for the X-H2S. So it's I'd... frustrating that Fuji themselves don't ship one, yeah. even though they have a grommet in the battery for and, in the battery and, for and, one. You know, and they're trying to position this as a you know a video camera. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is the top end video thing, and you can't get a good dummy battery for it. So that's ridiculous. But all that aside, it's got a USB USB C port, so perfect. He's powered over that. So I get my fancy new battery that has a USB C PD port on it, and I plug it into the camera. And it works, powers it up, but I started getting this weird buzzing noise from the rig. And it's not that loud, but, you know, it kind of bothers me that it's there because it makes me wonder what's going on inside. And, you know, if I was in a really quiet room, if I'm in a music studio trying to record something, is that going to be a problem? Just didn't like it. And so I did a bunch of investigation, tried different cables, different ports, all kinds of different stuff. What I discovered is that it only happens when you pull five volts from the USB-C port on the battery. That's so, very specific. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen if you pull higher power from it. So, like if I so so first off, the noise is coming from the battery, not from the camera. Very important to which dictate that. Yes, and that did make me feel better because you know when I hear a noise, I'm thinking maybe something's wrong inside. I would rather something be going wrong inside my hundred dollar battery and not inside my $2,500 camera. So that was good, but it confused me because when I plugged the battery into an iPad to charge the iPad, no noise. So what's the difference? And it turns out the battery tells you what voltage it is supplying over the USB-C port because it's USB-C PD, so it can supply different voltages. When I was charging the iPad, it was supplying something like 15, 20 volts, something like that. I guess it was not 20, but 15 volts and no noise. But on the camera, it always just pulls five volts. And that was what was making the noise. And what's weird is that that battery also has a USB-A port, which always provides five volts. And when I plugged into the USB-A port, I didn't get the buzz. So it's specifically the voltage regulator that they have on the USB-C output. And it's only when you pull five volts from it. That's so weirdly specific. I wonder if it's mm, all the batteries like this or just yours or manufacturing thing. Yeah, I wonder that too. I would love to test another one because yeah, I wonder if mine's bad or weird or something, but it's not a big enough deal for me to return it and deal with all that because it kind of just feels like probably the part they spec for that is just does that at that voltage. I don't yeah. know. And I've got other ways to power the camera. So it's not a big deal, but it's kind of kind of a weird, weird thing. 
Yeah, a little, little frustrating almost. Yeah. I wonder maybe the, if the camera, the camera can support USB PD. And so like, what if, what if the camera was just pulling more voltage like, and that would solve mm-hmm. the problem, but it's going to just charge to hundred percent and then it's going to sit at five volts. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, uh, I would be interested to try that. Maybe, you know, I get a, a battery down to half or something. I'll try right. to see if it charges at a faster speed. Yeah. But or like if, if when you're recording video, if it starts pulling more volts, I can't right. imagine that it would. But mm-hmm. I don't or know. Maybe if I put it in boost mode, I mean, I don't know. Sure, it'd be interesting to see. But uh, I mean, you should be running in boost mode all the time. You're right. I don't know why you're not. You're right. I should be. It 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 does it does improve your autofocus performance. Yeah, maybe I should. Although I don't use autofocus. So. Well, yeah. Who would? Yeah. Filthy casuals. Mm-hmm. Other than that, though, I'm happy with the battery. I think it's uh, I think it's gonna be pretty good, and like I said, I'll probably have some follow up on the follow up next week uh, to talk about how it went using it. All right, what else we got to talk about here, Daniel? Do you want to give me an update on um, DaVinci Resolve? Yeah, yeah, I think we should talk about that. I guess to catch anybody up who doesn't know this, we used to both edit with Final Cut Pro for quite a while, mm-hmm. and then sometime last fall we got interested in Resolve, and we were kind of, you were kind of forced into Resolve because you were having trouble exporting a project from Final Cut. Yeah, I was having this drop frame issue that I think I talked about at length here and I essentially like rage quit Final Cut and I have yet to go back to it. Yeah, and I think kind of around the same time and maybe partially motivated by that, we just kind of got interested in actually trying Resolve as an editing tool. You know, some of the features it had seemed to be maybe a little bit more pro focused and it just seemed like something that was worth trying and so put a finer point on it i specifically was interested in the color features mm-hmm. because they are significantly better than anything else that's out there that i've used and the collaboration feature was something that we both really wanted to try yeah yeah and so since then we've both been using it you've edited and released a couple of videos with it and i've been kind of going through some of the learning material and i haven't had as much time to spend on it but i've been kind of learning the way it works and right now we're working on a project together that we're actually trying to pull all these things together so we've been doing the edit completely in resolve we've done all the color in resolve and we've started using some of those collaboration features yeah and i think the collaboration feature is what i really want to dive into here Mm -hmm. i think i've done maybe five like soup to nuts videos in resolve at this point maybe four and so i feel like i have a good grasp around it but this most recent one is the one that we've actually are using the davinci resolve whatever in the cloud yeah and so we had to go through the whole experience of like you know you, you pay five dollars a month for a library and then you can just have as many projects in the library so we have one library costs like five bucks a month there's two projects in there right now um but i don't think there's like a limit to how many and it's not like $5 per collaborator either. It's just $5 total. And so we have a project set up and then that project syncs to Blackmagic's cloud. Mm-hmm. And all it's syncing is like timeline metadata, you know, XML type information. And then you have to have all of the original files and proxy files on your own machine. And so that was kind of a weird learning curve. And like what we found out was you have the person who sets up the project should have like a one one folder location of like here's all of my original media and if you have that media subfoldered you have to make sure that the other person has the exact same subfolder structure yeah. and so that that got a little weird cuz i apparently am just bad at where i put files <laughs> and i'm like well some of them are on this external drive but then these ones over here are on my internal drive and uh, but the proxies over here but that's not all the proxies cuz there's proxies over here it was just it was, yeah. it was too much Yeah, it seems like you have to be consistent about how you do that. And like when I think about it, it seems like basically for projects going forward, we need to have a defined folder structure that we use. Right. So we don't have to communicate that every time. So like it didn't matter like 
where, like say there's like an original media folder and then there's you know a bunch of subfolders in it. That original media folder is like the location. And so I'll locate on my computer where that is, some file path, user directory, blah, blah, blah. And then whenever you open Resolve on your end, you then have to um, associate that original media folder drive path to the location on your computer. And you only have to do that one time. There's a path mapping dialog where you can set that up. But it matters. The subfolders matter. So like wherever you map to has to have the exact same file Mm -hmm. folder structure. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one one thing that makes using their features better than just syncing the project file yourself. Right. Because I think if, I don't know this for sure, but I think if you were to just sync the project, like if I just emailed you the project file, I don't think you'd get that same path mapping behavior. No, it, it I wouldn't would know that It wouldn't know it was on a different computer. So. Right. And the way that I think Resolve sells this is if you set those locations to like a Dropbox folder or Google Drive or maybe like a shared Synology drive or something mm-hmm. where all those, we are actually accessing the same synced folder, then we can set the the map to that same folder. And then if you drop a file in there, it'll just, it's just going to show up on my computer because yep. like it syncs via the folder sync. And then it also, you know, updates. Yeah. And I think that workflow would work for a lot of people. I mean, honestly, the main reason it doesn't work for us is because we don't want to have all the original media on our laptops. Right. Exactly. So, but regardless, once we, and we had a little bit of trouble get, figuring all that out and getting that to work. But once we got that to work, it's been very reliable since then. And every time I open up the project, it finds all the files. I don't have any trouble with that. And then I can do whatever I'm going to do, save it, and then you can open it and your files all work as well. Yeah, that has been that has been amazing because there have been some projects where like we shot it together and we're like, okay, I'm going to do the edit. And then like, if I need anything, I'll let you know. And, you know, like maybe I can't work on it for a few days, but you were available. And like, it just makes the, makes the project last longer. Yeah. And then like whenever I was having the issues with, that one project with Final Cut, it, was, it wasn't it was as simple as like, well, can you open it and check it out? I would have had to like give you the whole project and like yep. install it. It's just, it was impossible. Yeah. And now it's like, I can just open it and it's, and it's there and then you can open it and we can be in it at the same time. That's, man. Yeah, yeah. It's been great. And I mean, all the edits sync across exactly the way you would expect. I mean, it's just, I think this is huge for doing multi-user stuff. All these YouTubers that had that have a remote editor they've hired, but they still want to have some control over the video. I don't know why they're not all using this workflow because it just seems great. Like you can have both people working together in it. You don't have to send files back and forth. I mean, it's just really cool system. Something I haven't gone back to look to see if like Premiere Pro can do this level of like multi-user collaboration. I have I'm not yeah, sure. I, I know, know the Final Cut just just doesn't. Yeah, it's very one user type thing. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, it's pretty new in Resolve, right? Isn't right. It Resolve 18. It came out with. That was like the big feature with Resolve 18. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's great. I mean, the fact that it's new makes me think maybe they'll be adding more stuff. You know, I'm curious to see right. what they might do next. But uh, I mean, I think for us, this is a game changer. Oh, it's it's huge. And then something to worth noting is that in order to make it multi-user simultaneously. Like you can share it in the cloud and then Daniel could open it and it was just locked. And then he had to close it and I had to open it. But if you open up that project, after it's open, you can then go back to the project browser, right click it, and then make it multi-user. That was a little confusing because it's like mm. if the project's not open, even if, like if no one has it open at all, and you right click on it in the project browser, you can't change anything. You have to open it and then right click on it yeah. in the project browser to change it to multi-user. Weird. I was a little like, I felt hidden almost. But once once I did that, it was... That's great. Yeah. Perfectly fine. Yeah. 
that's that's kind of my feeling about Resolve so far. It's extremely powerful, but you have to know where the settings are. You have to know how to do things, and that's not always super discoverable. Yeah. So, like, we did this collaboration thing, and then we also signed up for Frame.io and integrated that in, and it's like, it's just this whole new world has opened up. Yeah, Frame.io is really cool. That's basically a review tool, and you can actually integrate this into Resolve to where whenever you're done, whenever you hit a point on your project that you want to get feedback, you can render the project out and push it straight up to the frame.io cloud. And then you can send that review link to people that you're working with and they can play it right in their browser without downloading anything. And the killer feature of it is that if they want to make a comment, they can make a comment at a specific timestamp in the video. And those comments can be like marking up, they can draw on the frame, they mm-hmm. can write whatever they want. And then it's it, whenever they do that, if you did it, exported it from Resolve and signed into Resolve, it syncs those comments back into Resolve. Yeah, you see them as markers on the timeline. Yeah, which is yep. super awesome. And then yeah. you can like check them off there and they check off in, in yep. frame.io. You don't even have to like download a plugin. You just sign into the internet yeah. account. Yeah, it just works. And it's also great if you have multiple reviewers because, you know, let's say, let's say you have three reviewers. One person looks at it, they leave five comments. If another reviewer gets on, they can see those comments. And so that might keep you from getting the same feedback from everybody. You can also reply to the comments individually and everybody can see those. And so I think it really is going to help with keeping track of a bunch of feedback from people and letting multiple people review a project without it being this huge ordeal, you know, where you're sending a bunch of emails back and forth and stuff. I don't I don't like throwing around words like game changer just because I think it sounds stupid, but Oh my gosh. Like this, this is huge, especially for like the stuff that we do where it's, you know, maybe two or three people are going to need to look at it Mm -hmm. and we want to work on it together. And it's like, we don't necessarily aren't assigning like who's going to be editor, who's going to be doing sound and color or whatever. It's just like as available and we're just chewing through it, man. Well, and this is too good. And we don't all work in the same place. You can't have someone come over to your desk and talk to you about something. You know, you kind of need like this asynchronous, like, I'm going to work on it at night and then maybe somebody's going to review it during the day. And then maybe you're going to work on it after work one day or what, you know? And so like this works really well with all that. Yeah. I've been, I've been super impressed with how clean and how easy the dimension resolve collaboration stuff works. And I, I started looking into frame IO because, uh, Fuji's put out that press release that the, the support for the XH2 and XH2S for frame.io was coming. Yeah, or camera, camera to cloud. Yeah. yeah, which is, I mean, that's just a whole other feature set of mm-hmm. that frame.io, frame.io software that, yep. I mean, I don't know, it was worth getting into. Yeah, let's, not, the, let's, co- let's not cover that one today. Yeah. But I guess just to say the cost for frame.io is free for up to two users, where a user is a user is a video editor. It's not a reviewer. It's free for up to two users and up to two gigabytes and two projects of stuff. So, you know, if you're working on one thing at a time, that's probably fine. If you have a bunch of projects or if you need to upload, you know, a bunch of different versions of something, then the paid plans start at like $15 per month per user. So honestly, feels pretty reasonable to me for what you get. Yeah. So that's all really cool. And I mean, along with, I guess, everybody else in the entire world that's switching to Resolve. Yeah. I, I swear... I started switching to DaVinci Resolve before everyone else started switching to it. Dang it. If you say so. Jeez, it's just, I feel like I'm riding the wave. Yeah, you are. And You're right there on the bandwagon. Such a shill. Yeah. But Let, last thing, do you know who owns Frame.io? Jeff Bezos? No. Okay, good. Adobe. What? <laughs> are you serious? Jeez. <laughs> so let's, let's get out of here. Let's hope it continues to work for some of the Resolve. <laughs> Jeez. 
All right. So what's next? So I've been doing a lot of like Sony stuff recently. <laughs> Which is quite uncharacteristic for a Fuji bro such as yourself. Uh, such as myself. And it's been involved with a lot of like research and dealing with camera profiles and like figuring out what a picture profile is and what a color space is and what a color gamut is and a gamma and how you compare which gammas to which gamuts and and you are unironically loving every second oh, of it. Sure. I mean just casual casual reading of like Sony white papers in the <laughs> evening as I lull myself to sleep. Yep. First thing I wanted to cover because this came up when I was talking to somebody at I spend too much time at the camera store. I was talking to someone at the camera store and I was like, "So what do you what do you shoot?" And he's like, oh, you know, I, I use my my FX3, and the reason I bought the FX3 instead of the the A7S3 is because it has S Cine tone, and like S Cine tone's the bomb. And I'm like, cool, yeah, no, it's really good. I had no idea what S Cine tone is, and so I'm like, I got, and, I got. And now you do. Yeah, I'm like, we've we almost mentioned on this podcast of like, you know, oh, on the plus side, this camera has S Cine tone. Yeah, as if we know what that meant. Yeah, what what even is S Cine tone? So. What it is, it's basically a Turna, but but on a Sony camera. Uh huh. Um, okay, I'm so sure. maybe, maybe that doesn't explain it. I don't think that it is. It. it is a picture profile, and it is a in general, it is a Rec seven hundred nine picture profile. I would expect that you could set S Cine tone to an S log gamut, but it would probably be similar to using like Cine two or Cine three in an S log gamut in which there isn't really a supported color space transform for that gamma to a standard Rec. 709. All right, you've lost me a little bit. Sorry, okay. Let's, let's, uh, let's take a step uh, back. So. Oh boy, okay, yeah, sorry, too deep. Point is, in general, if you were shooting an Ascending Tone, you're probably shooting in Rec. 709. Okay. And then the color profile of like, the gamma or whatever is S Cine tone and it's going to look flat mm-hmm. and a little more color accurate. And it's going to be kind of like your straight out of camera profile. If you want to have a little more range, you know, a little flatter image to grade, but you're not looking to work in log. Interesting. So help, help me explain that or help me understand that though. So, I mean, if I'm shooting in log, I know I need a lot to convert that to a normal color space like Rec. 709 and right. then I can grade it and edit it like normal. It sounds like I'd still need that with S-Cinetone. Mm, no. Okay. No. You know, S-Cinetone is, is basically a Rec. 709 profile. What it kind of is, is like, I think what the camera's doing internally is it is shooting in a log profile, but it's like baking in all of your contrast. Okay. At least that's the way that Sony sells it. I see. As like, we're tr- we're capturing all this added dynamic range, but we're, whenever you output it, whenever it saves it to the card, it's saving it mm-hmm. with all the contrast and everything built in. So you could shoot an S-Cine tone and deliver it and it would look good. Okay. So it, it looks, it looks fine out of camera. That's why I'm comparing it to like Eterna, yeah. which is Fujifilm's film profile for movies, mm-hmm. which has, it's a softer look, softer colors. And softer contrast, so the shadows are a little little higher and that sort of thing. I usually find myself with Eterna wanting to add a little bit of contrast. Yeah, yeah. And, but like because because if it's more of a squished, like you don't, it's not pushing the highlights and pushing the shadows down. Mm-hmm. You have a little more range and latitude to work with okay. in post. Okay. But you could also deliver it like that, and it would look fine. Yeah. Okay. So cameras that shoot in a cine tone are like the FX6, the A1, FX3, FX9. Not the A7S3, I guess. Yeah, because that's what the guy at the store said, right? Right. And then the other thing to note is when you shoot an S-Cine tone, you're shooting in, your base ISO is 100. Oh, wow. 
And so it's now that's a meaningful difference, right? Versus like 640 for S log three. Yeah. And well, but that's not uncommon, right? If you're shooting an interna, your base ISO is 160, yeah. and then you can shoot an extended down to 100. It, it's really interesting because until fairly recently, I never would have felt like any of that mattered. But we've been in multiple situations recently where the high base ISO right. of a log profile is a, a big problem for getting proper right. exposure. Right, too, too bright. Yeah. And then also what I've found is like sometimes too noisy. Yeah. And this almost brings me into the next thing that I've been dealing with. And I feel like I'm just going to have to go on a tear here and explain gammas and gamuts for the, like the 15th time <laughs> and just apologize the whole time that I'm explaining it. So like I had, I got my hands on an a7 III because we're going to be doing a pro- a music video project where I have right. to color match a7.3s and xh2s's. Right. And like just figure out all that stuff. And man, like I know that people complain about 10, 8-bit Sony stuff and they're really pumped about the 10-bit Sony codecs. Well, I'm here to tell you 8-bit Sony codecs are hot garbage <laughs> just the most trash codec i have ever worked with brought to you by the fuji cast yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> i've what well, basically what i came down to for us shooting this thing is we're shooting the like the a7 III has s log 2 it's got s log 3 we are not shooting in those profiles we're shooting in a rec 709 profile because every time i try to color space transform or once i color space transform s log 2 or s log 3 and then try to like push it around a little bit to color match oh boy it just it break it breaks apart i get color blotching there's just not enough information even whenever you shoot in the most data intensive rate on the sony camera which is a whopping 100 megabits per second (laughs) and we're shooting 4k right yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's that's nothing. I know. It's like, I'm like looking at this. I'm like, well, if, if you shoot 1080, it caps you at 50. You have to shoot in 4K to get to, <laughs> to get to 100. I can't, it's like, so I can't bad. believe it. I mean, I mean, I can believe it. I mean, the camera came out in 2018, so. I still, I just, I don't, I don't get it. This is like, this is one of the reasons why I shoot Fuji is like the X-T3 came out the same time as the A7 III. And I cross-shopped those cameras and I went with APS-C route and I can shoot in all intra 400 megabit per second, 4K, 24 and cropped yeah. on my Fuji. And like, I shoot that in F-Log and I have all this latitude. Yeah, GH5 and, is the same way. And mm-hmm. that may have even been an older camera. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. But like, you try to do that. I mean, you can make the Sony look good and it's full frame and all that stuff. And it's, but like, if you start working with that footage, that 8-bit stuff falls apart like crazy. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Basically, what I've come down to is like, we're going to shoot in, I'm cutting to the chase here, but we're going to shoot in Cine 2 in Pro Color. And I'm going to push the shadows up and down to like get the contrast where I want it. And then I'm going to color match the Fuji to that because I know that I can't push the Sony colors around to match the Fuji yeah. because it will break. Yeah. And Man. it's frustrating to not be able to to do that. That's a bad place to be in. I feel like I'm going to get a bunch of comments and emails at this point where people are like, you're just doing it wrong, yeah. which is probably true. But still. I'd be like, the Sony colors are better anyway. And like... In all of my testing, I'm like really, I'm really stretching it because this music video is going to be semi-low light. And so I'm planning on most of my footage to be between zero and like 640, 700 Luma. And I'm I'm just going to be working in that range. And so whenever I did all my testing, I was like, okay, I know that on a Sony camera, you can open it up and you can pick up your picture profile. And it gives you an option to set your gamma and to set your gamut. And you can pick the two and you can, you can cross pair whatever you want. You can like set. <laughs> it's like, like the, like the Fuji video codec options. Oh, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's completely opaque. Like you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. You're like, well, what if I pick ITU 709 and I pair that with S log two? Or what if I pick Cine 4 and then set that to S log three Cine gamut? Or maybe like I should use Pro Color with ITU Matrix 
Matrix is the yeah. that's actually anyways. It sounds like you have too many choices. It's too much. And so I'm like, all right, let's try a bunch of different log profiles. Let's try a bunch of different color profiles. And I'm gonna shoot in the dark. Like, you know, here's a very very poorly lit scene, and then I'm gonna try to stretch the contrast and kind of see what I can get out of the image. Right. And what I learned is that if you shoot an S log two, that is for that is for highlights, not as for something with big dynamic range where you have a lot of really highly exposed things. You cannot recover shadows out of S log S log two at all. It's just it's just it's blotchy and terrible. S log three, better in low light, more width as far as data available, but like if I look at a, a histogram, like there's it's it's has a w- more sure. more data in the shadow, but it's way noisier, mm. like significantly noisier than shooting in a Rec. Seven Hundred Nine profile. Okay. And so what I found is like if I shoot in Cine Two, that one's pretty flat, pretty low noise, and then you can just pick your gamut for the color. Okay. 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 Now, man, it took you a lot to get to that, didn't it? Though, like you had to do a lot of experimentation mm-hmm. and. I feel like most people would assume like, oh, if you need to match footage, you've got to use the log profiles, but that's just not true in this case. Yeah. So like, and the reason I wanted to use the log is because the color space transforms are there in resolve. Mm-hmm. So that's, this is, I guess is where I want to get into the stuff of this. I don't know. Just whatever. We're, we're getting into it, Daniel, right now. So you, when you do a color space transform, you need to like, you have your, your color coming in and then I've never done this in like Final Cut or, or uh, Premiere. I've only done this in individual resolve, which like, for color editing, like this is what you're going to use. So if you're using an, any sort of like color manager workflow, you're probably going to color space to something and then color space to something else. But what it is, is you have your color gamut. And I feel like we've all seen it, right? You've seen the triangle where it's like this triangle is interposed on like a blob and the blob is like all visible color. It's like red, green, blue, and then they're all like merged together. Mm-hmm. And the gamut is showing you basically what, what colors you can see in this color space. Right, exactly. And so most like for... The internet and most computer stuff and final exported things, you're in Rec. 709, which is a very small color gamut. It's like your palette of available colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like your bit depth would be the subset of those colors, like 10-bit. But it's your palette of available colors. Uh, and then there's multiple different types of gamuts. Your log profiles are just larger gamuts. For Fuji, for your F-Log 2s and your F-Log 1s, that is Rec. 2020. If you're shooting in HDR and you're using HLG, HLG is in Rec. 2020. Okay. And that would be your final delivery profile, actually. Your final delivery color space. If you were delivering in um, HDR, you're probably delivering in Rec. 2020 or something similar. S-Log 2 is bigger than Rec. 2020. It's bigger than F-Log. It's bigger than DCI-P3, right? And then S-Log 3 is kind of a different shape. It encompasses slightly different colors, but it's basically like what colors are incorporated. Mm -hmm. Your gamma is how... How does the sensor, the sensors, I think we've talked about this before. The sensor is light, like from the darkest to the brightest. And it, your sensor is going to capture it linearly. And But whenever we view things, we don't want to see it linearly. The, you know, the darkest component is like you go up one stop. It's not necessarily going to be twice as bright. Yeah, it'd be some kind of like curve or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you have this gamma curve. And so... You, that's basically what it is. is how, what's the distribution of the dark parts to the light parts of the scene? Sure. How does your contrast represent yeah. it? And the Sony lets you pair multiple different gamma curves with multiple different gamuts. Okay. And, oh my gosh. Yeah, it, feels it, like, it feels like maybe there's some use case where you need all that flexibility. But in most cases, if you're just trying to get something that's going to like, quote unquote, look good, that sounds terrible. Yeah. So in 
they have default picture profiles and like if you don't understand it just stick with the picture profiles and don't start making your own pairings unless like you know what you're doing um or you like to experiment but they they'll let you just pair whatever and if you go look at the documentation they'll be like oh this one's more pleasing for this and this one looks like this but for me what i really want is i want like two sides of a table and the one on the left shows me the like literally shows me the gamma curve of like here is the here is stops from negative nine to nine and then up vertically is your luma value from zero to ten twenty four, mm-hmm. and here is a curve, boom. And like this one is cine two, and this one's cine three, and this one's s log, and this one. And I just, I want that. <laughs> and then over here on this side, I want a, a gamut. And like here is the chart of colors and the triangle showing me like the color space for all these. Yeah, yeah. That way I can be like, well, I want that, and I want that, and that I feel like that would help me decide. But they don't like they don't give you that, mm-hmm. and so things like. Pro color, which is supposed to have more accurate color, is kind of Rec. 709, but it's actually just a little bigger than Rec. 709. Huh. And the reason all of this matters is because if you're trying to color match footage, a really nice way to work is to color space transform everything into a common profile and then grade that, put your grade on that common profile and like color correct all your clips and then provide your creative, you know, color matching at the end. Yeah, because that way you're not having to grade like, oh, is this from the Sony camera or from the Fuji camera? And I have to grade mm-hmm. those differently. Yeah, I just want, I want to take all of it and then put them all into the same thing. Yeah. And maybe that's Asus, you know, maybe that's something else. Maybe you're just, maybe I you color transform into Rec. 709 and then like you're doing your grade you know, between the color space transform, mm-hmm. a lot of different ways that you can do it, but you still want to be able to bring everything down to something similar. And in working with the Sony, it's like in Resolve, as far as the available gammas, they have the S logs, but they don't have like Cine 2 or Cine 3 or that sort of thing. And as far as gamuts, they have, you know, S log 2, S log 3, S log 3 Cine, but they don't have like iMatrix 709, they have Rec 709, and they don't have like Pro Color and all these like movie still. Like, I don't know what those are. Yeah. I assume they're Rec. 709. And so it's just kind of a pain of like, whenever you're cross pairing all these things from the Sony, like there are certain things that won't work. Like I tried shooting in Cine 2 for the flatter gamma into a S gamut 3 Cine gamut. And it's like, cool, I can color space transform this to Rec. 709, but then I have to pass through the gamma and then I have to do all the contrast grading myself because there is no gamma curve for Cine 2. So, in. It's, so it's not that it doesn't work, it's that there aren't presets for it. Right, exactly. Well, it's like shooting an F-log too. You don't, there's no color space transform for that in right. DaVinci Resolve right now because hmm. reasons. Hmm. <sighs> That's a whole nother, a whole nother, <laughs> I'm going to make a video on that one because yeah. anyways. And so like, this has always been really frustrating as far as it's impossible to understand. And I feel like the Sony documentation is bad. And there's so many people that are like, like there's so many options in the camera. Like you can set the black levels and the knee and the white levels and the gamma and the gamut and the color. And there's so many options and it's all poorly documented. And there's a billion YouTube videos that are like, use these settings for the coolest a seven three look. The most cinematic footage. Yeah, they're like, oh, if you're shooting in low light on the A7 III, you got to shoot in movie mode, but in pro color, but then you got to set the blacks to negative four on uh, the color. And I'm like, I'm not doing I'm not doing any of that stuff. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder if there are people that are legitimately needing to change these settings that know what they're doing to change them, or if this is a case of Sony just throwing every setting they can possibly think of at users just to like make them feel like it's more flexible, or just maybe Sony doesn't know exactly what people want, so they just give them all the options, it, it, but it doesn't sound very usable. Yeah, I mean, like, I think the, the, ba- the, the bottom of it is, like, if you look at Sony's documentation, they'll say, for this gamma, this is built to work with 
this color profile. Yeah. And so, like, if you're shooting in Cine 1, Cine 2, Cine 3, Cine 4, you should be using the cinema color space, not the IT709 matrix, not S-Log2. But they give you the option to not to not do that yeah. if it like if it works yeah. for your workflow but i just think it's kind of confusing and it just it's just like that data rate thing on the food you were yeah. it's like this is too many options i mean it's just kind of like options are good and i guess it's good to have them but in both cases for the fuji data rates as well as this i almost want all of that to be deeply hidden in some sort of advanced menu you know if you want to give me the ability to edit a preset and change stuff then cool but I don't want to be faced with a screen where I just have a lot of options and I have to try and pick the right ones. That, that doesn't that's not very usable. I just wish there was a better way to understand what the camera was going to do without having to just shoot, you know, 50 different yeah. clips of all the different versions and then go through and like try to color grade them and like look at the contrast, and like see how it's going to look and check the color. Like I don't like I don't have all those charts yeah. with me that I want to like, OK, now shoot the chart. Now change where it lands mm-hmm. on the color profile. And it's just. Well, and that's just a lot. I mean, there, you know, there, there's value in learning how to use your tools, but that kind of stuff isn't really fun past a point. I mean, that that's not what I want to spend my time. That's not the skill I want to spend my time honing is like oh, how yeah, to pick yeah, the me, right. So neither. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> You're loving every second of it. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun, but still. I mean, but still, it's like that's a lot of time you invested that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have the time to, to spend on something like that. Right. And so they just pick something that, you know, oh, this looks good. This looks cinematic. And. It's a shame because they may not be using their camera to its full potential because mm-hmm. they don't know what settings to pick. Yeah. So when I was going through all this, I did a lot. I did some shots where I was shooting in like F-Log 1 or F-Log. I tried F-Log 1 and F-Log 2, but I was shooting in an F-Log profile, 1 or 2 on the on the X-H2S. And then I was going through all these different options on the Sony because I was going to know I was going to have to try to color match them. And so I'm like, all right, I'm shooting in. I, I set all my stuff to the same thing. I'm like, okay, the Fuji is 1250 ISO and, um, you know, F1.4 and blah, blah, blah. And then the Sony, I'm going to set the exact same thing. What I, came, what I came out of it was like the gamma and like how that stuff is set up, it plays so much into the exposure of these cameras. And basically what I figured out was like, if I'm in the, if I'm shooting like middle gray, for instance, F-Log2, middle gray is a stop higher than F-Log1. Higher, hmm. lower, higher, higher, lower, lower. Yeah. Uh, it's a stop lower. And so like, but because of that, like the noise floor is higher. It's just noisier, but like you get more range on the highlights. But, but like because of this, because of like where it is, middle gray is like the middle, middle exposure. Um, and so like I'm comparing full frame camera to APS-C camera. And essentially what I, what the conclusion I came to was like, if it was a medium exposed shot, then they basically looked the same huh. like one didn't really appear brighter and one didn't really appear darker interesting um but what i found was like once you got into the low light i was like oh yeah i can see i can see more on the sony because it's it's going to be a stop darker and then on the fuji i was like wow i can see way more into the highlights because it's going to be a stop brighter huh. just because of like where i am on the exposure or yeah yeah anyways i see a lot of that just came down to you know like where is the gamma gonna sit in this color profile and so I feel like we go a lot of like back and forth of like, oh, you know, full frame versus crop sensor and like how much light can you capture and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, like if you're sh- your camera, if you're shooting at like ISO 1000 or ISO 800 or 640, that's going to be more dictated by the way that they built those gamma profiles in your camera and less so like what your sensor size is. <laughs> and and that's why like if you shoot in at ISO 1250 in F-Log1, 
versus F-Log 2, F-Log 1 is just going to be less noisy. Yeah. And it's because of like the way the gamma curves is and all this stuff and like base ISOs and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like the conversation of like how noisy is this sensor and like, do I really need full frame? How bright is the image going to be? And like, what is it going to look like with these different settings is impossible to compare because the like the gamma profiles are going to have this huge, huge outweighed effect. In yeah. It. Yeah. But all of that that you just said is really hard to convey in a five minute YouTube video. Which yeah. is why nobody knows this. Right. I mean, or if you do it like that's when you once you get to this level, you're like, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. I'm not trying to be elitist with it, but it's just, you know, that like this is some of this is news to me or I, I would not have thought that that was how that worked. And so, it, yeah, it's kind of like you hit this inflection point where when you when you compare cameras, when you buy a camera, you stop thinking like, well, is it crop sensor or is it full frame? And like you start thinking about some of this stuff like, well, what color space am I shooting in and what options does it give me there and what's my post workflow going to be like? And yeah. it's just a different world. I just I we did a like I, we shot, set up a color chart and we shot with an EOS R, the GH6 and the X-T3. GH5. Thank you. The GH5 and yeah. the X-T3. I remember that. And I was like trying to trying to color match them. Basically, what I came down to was like. Vlog is just super neutral, and I could match the Vlog to either camera, yeah. but I couldn't match the Fuji to the Canon. I couldn't match the Canon to the Fuji. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "Ah, oh, geez, Panasonic's so good." <laughs> but, but like in looking at it, we shot with the exact same settings. We're like, "Okay, we're like f four, f two point eight, or whatever it was, with the same ISO and the same shutter speed." And I was like, "This full frame camera doesn't look a stop brighter mm-hmm. at all." I remember, I remember that being really confusing. Yeah, you. and I was like, "I don't understand. Like, this is a full frame sensor. Why is this like?" And, and it, but then that's but that's the whole thing. It's like it comes down to like where are they setting middle gray in the exposure? Yeah, and like, is it have more room on the bottom or does it have more room on the top? And how are uh-huh. they translating it? And I feel like what I'm getting at here is basically the same thesis that I've had for the last 10 times we've done a technical discussion, which is APS-C is better than full frame. <laughs> <laughs> and we should all just switch to Fuji. <laughs> I was going to say my takeaway from this conversation is that I'm really happy that those uh, Resolve collaboration features work as well as they do because I don't want to mess with any of this stuff. <laughs> and you seem to be really into it. And so I'm just going to let you color grade everything we work on. And I'm just not going to spend a moment thinking about it. And it's going to be great. Yeah, you yeah, know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> But I don't know. So um, I'm excited to actually get into and do editing with the Sony footage. People loved the A7 III when it was out. They loved the A7 IV. People, big, you know, big Sony people. Sony makes really cool stuff. I just, thus far, not impressed with the codex in that camera yeah. at all. Man, that's interesting. Um, I'm a little surprised to hear it. Um, but, you know, I know their newer stuff can shoot in 10-bit and all that. So mm-hmm. they, they've kind of fixed some of this. But... Yeah, I've heard that the 10-bit is great. Yeah. Like it's just It's just super good. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to see how it goes, too. And, uh, you know, I think as much as I don't want to do it, I do think it's time well spent. And being able to match footage from different cameras is pretty important. Yep, for sure. And so I'm doing we're doing all this because we're, we're doing this music video shoot. And in preparation for the shoot, I may have bought more camera gear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that feeling. <laughs> so what'd you buy? So I, I uh, in- invested my hard-earned money into an Aperture COB60X. Yep. What you've been talking about for a long time. And boy, that light is still super cool. Yeah. Are you happy with it? Uh, yeah. So far, I'm like, I'm really happy. With it. I mean, I've, I've had it for like barely any time. Yeah. But that thing is so small. It's just like the tiniest, cutest little thing. And it gets crazy bright. Yeah. Like it's I, extremely bright. I mean, it's like 60 watts, right? So like it's going to be as bright as a 60 watt light. But I think it's like 37,000 lumens or yeah. something for the yeah. for the multicolor. Mm-hmm. The white one's even brighter. Yep. Yep. I mean, it 
it puts out a lot. And I think that people underestimate or or I should say people overestimate how much light they need. Right. Well, I mean, like you just don't want to be in a situation where you just don't have enough yeah. light. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. But I mean, we we lit. I'll come back to the COB. Uh, we lit that whole scene in preparation for for the shoot and just to test lights out. And we're like, okay, we're going to have uh, two key lights and then two fill lights. And then we'll have the COBs as accent lights and then we'll have practical lights. And just like the two, like we had a, a VL-150 and a VL-60. No, no, it's just a 60 SLW. Yeah. Both Godox lights, so a 60 watt and 150 watt. And we're running those at like 30% and 15%. So yeah. they're having roughly the same output. Still like, way too bright yeah, we, I'm we shooting. Had, like 33 inch lanterns on them mounted like you know 10 feet in the air on mm-hmm. c-stands yeah and it, yeah just like bathes the entire area in light it's, it's ridiculous so much light I'm, I'm like shocked that i'm shooting at you know f 2.8 iso 640 on my fuji and i'm like i sure wish i could open up my aperture more without overexposing <laughs> well and that's kind of what i was getting at like now now we suddenly see that base iso really mattering because yeah. we actually have too much light and i mean there was a moment when we were trying this out where we were thinking you know do we need to be using nd filters because we, we want to shoot low depth of field <laughs> But yeah, shoot, shooting, oh, let's shoot this low light music video indoors where we control the lighting and then put ND filters on. <laughs> yeah. So we're not going to do that. But it's just, I was, I couldn't believe how much light we had. I, I thought we were going to be struggling to get enough light. Yeah, for sure. So that was kind of a pleasant surprise. We ended up having to cut back our practicals by 50% and really pull back a lot of the lighting. And just, mm-hmm. we, you know, we needed nowhere near as much as we thought. Yeah. Yeah. Good problem to have. So, yeah. I mean, you always want to have enough light. So, like, yeah. bring all the lights but then you're just not going to use all of them probably. Yep, yep. And so I got I got the COB, and they Aperture just came out with a new Amaran COB 60X and D, which is and they, S. They, yeah, they have so an S on the end. COB 60D, S, 60X, S. And these are more color accurate. They're less bright. And then they're at the price point, and then all the old ones are now $20 cheaper. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, I got to buy the old one before it goes out of stock. Well, that was what I thought too when I saw it because I, I didn't do it, but I'd been thinking about getting that 200-watt COB 200X, which first off, is can you COB imagine? Is it just Amaran 200X? Maybe it's just Amaran 200X, but can you imagine how bright that would have been? It would be so bright. But, but uh, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's like these S lights seem cool, but honestly, I'd rather have the price discount. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, definitely. Like, they're still relative, they're still color accurate. They have a high CRI. Oh, yeah. And... You know, you save 20 bucks and it's brighter. Yep. yep. And that matters. I mean, like, it matters a lot to me. So I'm like, B&H, sold out. Okay, go to go to the camera store. Uh, Don't have one here, one at, like, the other location in town. And then the other location has one that's, like, in Houston. And I'm like, well, shoot, can't buy one here. Log on Amazon. They're like, we have eight left in stock. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Emergency buy one. And they got it to me, like. I bought on Amazon at like four o'clock and it was at my house at, at 8 a.m. Yeah, that's incredible. So that was cool. Yeah. But still, I, I felt like I was emergency buying this this light. Yep. Well, I'm glad you have it too because, you know, we do a lot of interview stuff where we go to a location and set up an interview. It's going to be so nice to just use two of Man, those lights. We're not even going to have to think about plugging in. Yeah. And like, you don't need, like, you don't even have to do anything. Like, you can set up a new profile 
And then I don't even have to like hit a sync button on your light or anything. I was just able to like boop, boop, add both lights to a profile. And now I can control both about lights on the, on the Sidus Link app. Yeah, on the Sidus Link app. So yeah. that's cool. It's less like if you're in Bluetooth range of any aperture lights, you can just add them to the thing, set up a profile. And like I didn't have to do anything special. I didn't have to like share your whatever Mac address of your light or yep. something. Yep. It just works. And yeah, so that's going to be great because those things, they can pack up small enough to fit into a peak design 45 liter travel if, backpack if one were to have such if a one bag. were to have one yeah and yeah i mean we can just load them into the bags and like show up with a backpack and a, and a lamp stand in your in your hand and light stand lamp stand whatever and there you go battery yeah. powered don't have to look for Perfect. plugs yeah. boom boom set them up so you want to talk a little bit about the power options yeah so uh i mean i feel like we've, we've covered this before last yeah, time but like have. whenever i was buying it i was like yeah these things are great and they can shoot, shoot. i mean i don't know why i'm telling this person that i'm buying at the camera store probably like knows more about this than i do but i'm like yeah you can you know use npf or v mount and she's like they don't they don't support v mount and i was like yeah, yes they do she's like no no they don't <laughs> it has a v mount on the side <laughs> and just so just to clarify you have to get the d tap to barrel jack converter and then it has a v mount bracket on the side yeah like just the physical the physical one mounting thing mm-hmm. yeah. and so like the npf one is a plate that mounts to that you yep. put two npf batteries on it or you can mount a V-mount battery. And so I felt pretty justified that I was right about it. And I uh, <laughs> definitely didn't rub it in. And so I just, you know, moved on with my life. But yeah. now I'm talking about it here. You can record, you, you can use both batteries. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. And we, you know, for this shoot, we have power right there. So we're just plugging it into the wall outlet. Yeah, why not? Pretty, uh, pretty pleased with how long that power cord is. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, it's just 10 feet to the brick. And then like 10 feet from the brick to the... <laughs> I love it when lights have really, really long power cords. Yeah. It yeah. feels like they understand me. Yes. Yes. But yeah, that was interesting. I, I'm just so surprised how much light we had. And I'm curious to see how the shoot goes. But I think that our setup went pretty well. We had everything we needed. C-stands. That's another thing you emergency bought. You emergency bought a C-stand. I did emergency buy a C-stand. And I almost bought like a $120 one from Amazon. And I was like, I just can't. I just can't do it. Yep. Um, what I did learn is like, the turtle base one that I bought from B and H is a B and H brand C stand. Oh, interesting. and then, um, oh geez, Adorama they have their own brand C stand, and apparently their C stand has different connections on like the main rod piece, huh? And it has like threaded threaded pieces on the ends. Interesting. Versus the one that's on the B and H turtle base one, that one doesn't have a thread on one end, and then the clamp head is fixed on the other end, huh? But the clamp head for the B and H one has ridges in it that make it a little better at like holding things tight. So you might have a better experience clipping things on the B&H one. But if you need something that has built in threads on the cross rod, the Amaran one may be better. And it's like 20 bucks cheaper. You said Amaran, you meant Adorama. Dang it. Oh, the Adorama one. And it's like 20 bucks cheaper. So Hmm. I think if I was going to buy another C-Stand, which let's let's be be real, I'm probably going to buy another (laughs) C-Stand. I think I'll buy the the Adorama one. Well, then you have both options. Yeah. And then it kind of makes it a little more flexible and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. You were you were surprised how high the C stand could go. Well, yeah, I mean, like I know that you can buy them at like five foot and ten foot, but I wasn't really expecting it to go ten feet tall. <laughs> well, and that's not even using the boom arm. You know, you, yeah. could, you, could, you could put the boom arm going straight up. I mean, it's crazy. C stands are the best. Yeah, yeah, super useful. I don't know. I mean, that's that's basically it. I just I feel like if someone was looking for a light, I don't know why. Like, unless your budget's a hundred bucks and you're gonna go buy a used like SL sixty W or something, the the COB sixty X feels like the perfect light for most people i feel like if you're using if you just need a key light and it's just you indoors or something 
I mean, 60 watts is really all you need. Yeah. I mean, like if you're getting into movie set stuff or like shorts and that sort of thing and where you need to like shoot a light through a bunch of diffusion or you're like trying to imitate sunlight through a window, yeah, you need a super bright light. Mm -hmm. But if you're just looking for a straight up key light for interviews or that sort of thing, you only need 60 watts. And this thing is so small and portable and it, it's bicolor and it's battery powered. Yeah, <sighs> not I'm that just, expensive, has I'm, the app. I mean, it's, it's great. And I'm absolutely obsessed with this thing. Yeah. I mean, even if you did want to get a brighter light later, that's going to continue to be useful for mm-hmm. mobile setups as a fill light, whatever you want to do. I mean, yeah. it's a great light. I mean, it's got like all the effects in it. I've already already have plans of using it uh, to imitate firelight for uh, mm. this short that I want to shoot. And so it's going to be great. Pretty cool. So bummed. Yeah. And we're doing that shoot. As we record this, we're doing it this week in two days. So maybe next time we'll be able to talk a little bit retrospective on how the actual thing went. Yeah, it'll be, be good pretty to kind of interesting. We're going to have 20 or 30, you know, subjects, musicians there, and then a camera crew of four or five people. So that's going to, I think even just talking about that, it's going to be interesting. You know, yeah. How we, how we organize it, how it, how it goes. Yeah. So. Dealing with the people, dealing with all the different sh- shot angles and syncing the audio and all that stuff. It's going to be yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So more on that to come. Cool. I think that'll do it for today. What do you think? Yeah. No, I don't. I mean, we could talk about gamuts and gammas a little more if you want. <laughs> get get deeper into codex. We could talk about Asus. Huh? We, we we could, but I don't think we should. Oh, okay. Okay. Fine. <laughs> That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening. And we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.